So I would be willing to bet if each of us were to look back over the course of our lives that we look at some of the greatest impact, some of those things that have impacted us the most in our lives. We remember some moments that were awesome, joy-filled, the birth of a child, standing before uh, an altar and marrying the love of our life. There's some awesome moments, the time that we met Jesus, moments of awesome joy and celebration. We also see some things that we learn just through the grind of repetition, just through long hours of traveling in the same direction, and still other moments of pain and confusion or trauma that have left their marks on us as well. All these things that have had the greatest impact on our lives. But it's out of all these moments that who we are today has emerged. We've, we've become who we are today as a result of those moments. This is the, the context of our lives. It's our history. It's our story. Can I just say that you can't know somebody until you learn their story. It's been said for a long time, don't judge a man until you've walked a mile in his shoes. We've all heard that. But it's not just about judging, it's about appreciating. It's about knowing, it's about understanding. Until you've lived with pain or disability. Until you know what it's like to be judged because of your gender or your age or the color of your skin. You don't understand what it's like and how it affects you. But we can and should take some time to learn, to understand, to know one another. As a little exercise this morning, look around the room for a moment. There's a lot of stories in this room you don't know. There's some names in the stories you don't even know. So I'm going to encourage you, go grab lunch after church today, next week, the week at, well, not next week, but go grab lunch after church. Say, you know what, I, I want to get together with you guys. I, I want to hear your story. Tell me. Tell me something about your history. Take time to listen. Today I want to talk about history, but just in a little different way. I want to talk to you about the history of Christian faith. For those of us who have decided that we're going to follow Jesus, and for those of us who are thinking about following Jesus, we need to know the history of the faith, how it got here, what shaped it, and how history affects it now, and possibly how it will shape our future, the future of our faith and our future. <clears throat> Excuse me. So next week, as we gather back here in this place to celebrate what is arguably the single most important event in the history of the world, right? The resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth. Now, for some of you that may be listening, maybe even in the room this morning, you may not yet be convinced that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. I would encourage you to examine the evidence. Is there proof? undeniable, unshakable proof that God exists, that Jesus rose from the dead. No, but there's plenty, friends, of evidence. Are you willing to examine the evidence with an open heart and see if you can find a better explanation for the historical facts surrounding this event? You can simply search for articles on the minimal facts of the resurrection. If you've never looked at that, I encourage you to do so. You can take a look at books like A Case for Faith. A Case for Christ, Who Moved the Stone. All of these are excellent resources if you're looking for evidence. Because if Jesus really rose from the dead, then that changes everything. It changes who we are. It changes what the world is. It changes what happens in eternity. If Jesus really rose from the dead, then it changes everything. Because I believe and I'm convinced that Jesus was so much more than just a Jewish rabbi that had a reputation for miracles. He was so much more than a great moral philosopher and teacher. 
by rising from the dead, just as he predicted, he demonstrated that he was who he claimed to be, God in the flesh, the Son of the Father, and one day the returning King who will bring justice, glory, peace, joy, love, truth, and power forever in a remade heavens and a remade earth. Knowing our history, friends, is critical. We need to know how we got here. We need to know who we are, and we need to know where we're going. As we're preparing for Easter, I wanted to go further back this morning and look into what we, are, we commonly call the Old Testament for Jewish people. That is their Bible. For us, we call it the Old Testament. And I wanted to walk us through a topic that I've never spoken on before. I was talking to a, a pastor I've been meeting with, and I've never been, and I, I know some are, and I just never have. I've never been sort of a messianic kind of a guy. You know, I've never really gotten into a lot of Jewishness, although one of the best classes I ever took in Bible college was the uh, Jewish background of the New Testament. I loved that class, loved that teacher. But I've never been, um, I've never been extremely interested or dove into a lot of the festivals or the Jewishness of our faith. And about a month and a half ago, I was praying, and I really felt directed to look at the connection that Jesus had to the Jewish festivals. I had some understanding, but I wanted to know more with a plan to share what I learned with you this morning. So it's going to be pretty different than what we typically experience on a Sunday morning. We're going to end up with more of a Bible study than a preached message, but we're going to work through an introduction to the Jewish feasts and look at how Jesus is revealed through them. We're going to look at some of our history to not just figure out where we've been and what God has done, but where we're going. When we're talking about these feasts and special days that the Jewish people have been celebrating for some 2,000 years, had been celebrating for some 2,000 years at the time of this writing, Paul said this about them, these feasts, in Colossians chapter 2, verse 17. He said, these are a shadow of what was to come, but the substance is Christ. These are a shadow, these feasts, these holy days. They are a shadow of what is to come, that the substance is Christ. God used these feasts for a number of different purposes, but he used their repetition to teach each generation important truths. These festivals typically had an agricultural meaning, and they also had a religious meaning. They had historic meaning, and they had prophetic meaning. They teach history, but they also point towards the future. So let's look at what I'm talking about. There's a graphic of a Jewish calendar there. Now, as you can see, they're separated into spring feasts and fall feasts. This is something I never realized before until I looked at it on a calendar, right? Now, you can see the, uh, the gold ring are the Jewish months. The blue ring, of course, are our months. And you can see how they align. They don't align perfectly, but they do align generally. Now, you see spring feasts. There's four spring feasts. There's three Fall feast, Passover, unleavened bread, first fruits, and then sometime later is Pentecost, 50 days after Passover, Penta 50, 50 days after Passover is Pentecost. And then in the fall, there's the Feast of Trumpets, the Day of Atonement, and Tabernacles. We're going we're gonna to go quickly through all of these, and we're going to begin to look at to see what we can learn about Jesus 
in the Jewish festivals, right? So let's begin by looking at Passover. We see the first Passover happening in real time in Exodus 12. Anybody remember? How many have seen the Ten Commandments? Right? Moses, the actor, not Burt Lancaster, Charlton Heston. That guy is like forever going to be Moses in my mind, right? So I can see this whole scene of the Passover. They're screaming outside. The blood's on the doorpost and the lentil, right? The, the first Passover happening in real time in Exodus 12. The children of Israel are about to be released from Egypt. But Pharaoh would not let the slaves go. So God released the last and terrible plague, the death of all of the firstborn in Egypt. And God instructs them. He says, in order to be protected from this judgment, God told the Israelites to do what? To kill a lamb. To drain the blood. To roast the meat. They were to mark their doors with the blood, eat the lamb in preparation for their journey, along with bitter herbs and unleavened bread. Somebody say unleavened. And that just means no yeast, like flatbread. Right? They don't, they're in a hurry. We're not going to take time for this bread to rise. We're unleavened bread. In Leviticus 23.5, God reaffirms this Passover. The Passover first happens in Exodus. God is giving uh, the Israelites the law in Leviticus. We're in chapter 23, verses 4 and 5. He reaffirms this Passover as not just a one-time event, but as a yearly observance. He says, these are the Lord's appointed times, the sacred assemblies you are to proclaim at their appointed times. The Passover to the Lord comes in the first month at twilight on the 14th day of the month. Now, fast forward about 1,400 years, if I say 1,400 years, to the prophet Jeremiah, who is speaking to God's people who have turned their backs on God and turned, given themselves to idolatry. The prophets are God speaking through men to calling His people back to repentance, calling His people back to God. About 1,400 years after this event, Jeremiah is speaking to the the southern kingdom. He's speaking to Bethlehem, to Judah. So even though they had broken the covenant God made with them, God promises them a new covenant. God offered them a covenant, right? But they broke it. He says, if you will follow me, if you will obey me, I will bless you, right? The promises of Abraham about a God, about a land, and about a people. He made them a promise, but they broke it over and over and over again. And even though God sent prophets, they ignored them and killed them. And yet God gives them a new covenant. A second chance based not on their ability to keep the law, but on God's gift of a heart transformed by His Word and a forgiveness offered by grace. Jeremiah 31, 33-34. God says to the prophet, instead, this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days. The Lord's declaration, I will put my teaching within them and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. For I will forgive their iniquity and never again remember their sin. Aren't you glad? Friends, it's not based on how good you can perform. It's not how much you have it all together. It's based on the kindness, the love, and the generosity of God that He writes His law on our hearts and He changes us from the inside out. Now continue to fast forward about another 600 years. Jesus is sharing the Passover meal with His disciples. He deviates from the standard declarations and prayers that are a part of the Passover meal, the Passover Seder. 
and he claims to be instead the new Passover lamb. Luke 22, 20, we're not just here to eat the Passover lamb. I am that lamb. Luke twenty two twenty. in the same way, he also took the cup after supper and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. Jeremiah said, there's going to be, God through Jeremiah says, there's going to be a new covenant. And when, what does Jesus say? This is the new covenant. This is that. This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. John the Baptist introduces Jesus as the Passover lamb. So not only does Jesus claim, say that he is, John the Baptist says he is. John 1, 29, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 5, 7, So we have Jesus, we have John, we have Paul. 1 Corinthians 5, 7, Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new unleavened batch. As indeed you are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. If you may not be aware, leaven is a type of sin. It's a symbolic of sin. So you're talking about get the leaven out. Get the sin out. Clean out the old leaven. Get rid of the sin so that you can be a new unleavened. You can be free of the sin that so easily entangles us and tries to snare us and hold us back and keep us down. As indeed you are now an unleavened batch. For Christ is our Passover lamb. It's not about what we can do. It's what he did. He has been sacrificed. Jesus said he was the Passover lamb. John the Baptist said Jesus was the Passover lamb. Paul said Jesus was the Passover lamb. The day Jesus was crucified was the day of Passover. He came to shed his blood. So that judgment could pass over those lives who by faith accepted and applied its powerful rescue. Jesus, the Passover lamb, comes and he's crucified on the day of Passover. God showed the people how his power was enough to save them from their enemies. He reminded them for thousands of years over and over and over again that there was a lamb that could keep them from judgment. And then he comes and he provides a perfect lamb named Jesus. He kept that promise in a new and a greater way than what uh, the promise of Passover, but even a greater way than they understood or knew. The very next day, let me say the next day, The next day after Passover is the Feast of Unleavened Bread. The Feast of Unleavened Bread. The very next day, Leviticus 23, 5-7. The Passover to the Lord comes in the first month at twilight of the 14th day of the month. The Festival of Unleavened Bread to the Lord is on the 15th day of the same month. For seven days, the first day of unleavened bread starts and goes on seven days afterwards. For seven days, you must eat unleavened bread. On the first day, you are to hold a sacred assembly. Gather together with prayer and with fasting. You are not to do any daily work. We are just here to be with our God. That's a regular occurrence as you read through this history. Three times a year, every Jewish male was commanded to come to travel to to Jerusalem, no matter where you lived. To travel to Jerusalem. Some of these are many days journey to come and to worship. Sometimes we don't want to drive to church. (laughs) Come on, somebody. I could really preach right now and talk about Wednesday, but I ain't going to. I could talk about Wednesday night, but I ain't going to. Pastor Tim, don't do it. 
These folks traveled for days, three times a year. Command just to come, just to stand and be together before the Lord. Leaven was seen, as I mentioned, for a symbol of sin. A piece of unleavened bread during the Passover meal. A piece of unleavened bread, which means without yeast, was taken and broken. And then the largest part was wrapped in a cloth and hidden. Passover, feast, unleavened bread, without sin, taken and broken. The largest part wrapped in a cloth and hidden. Like Jesus, unleavened, sinless, broken body was wrapped in a cloth and hidden in the ground. He was buried, guess on what day? Feast of unleavened bread. You with me? 1 Corinthians 11, 23 and 24. On the night when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread. And when he had given thanks, broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Unleavened bread. Do this in remembrance of me. What kind of bread did Jesus use in the Passover meal? Unleavened bread. Take this bread, the unleavened. This is my body. The very next day, we looked at Passover. We looked at the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Next is the Feast of First Fruits. The very next day, Feast of First Fruits. Leviticus 23, 9 through 11. The Lord spoke to Moses, Speak to the Israelites and tell them, When you enter the land I am giving you and reap its harvest, you are to bring the first sheaf of your harvest to the priests. He will present the sheaf before the Lord so that you may be accepted. The priest is to present it on the day after the Sabbath. After Saturday. Sabbath is on Saturday. The day after the Sabbath. First fruits was the first of three harvest festivals. This is an agricultural community. They grow their food in the middle of the desert. They are depending on God. In fact, he said, if you will obey me, I will bring water from heaven. That's what some of this is. Time, it's concentrated time to pray, to seek God for what they need because if folks don't get water, they don't eat, they starve, right? They don't have all the stuff that we have. This is, their life is dependent. They don't have to try to work to live in dependency on God. They are living in dependency on God. First fruits is the first of three harvest festivals. At this time in early spring, the people are expected to offer a sheaf of the still green barley. It's just coming out. Right, Just the kernels appearing on the barley. They come and they bring it to the Lord. It's to demonstrate that God came first and that the Israelites trusted God with His early harvest and were trusting for His blessing on the rest of the harvest. Now we could talk about tithing right here. We give God His part first. We don't wait until the end and see what we have left and say, and, and you can do however you want to tithe. I believe the Bible speaks about a tithe that's 10%. But I'm going to encourage you, if you don't tithe, start with 3%. Start with 5%. Start with something and just be faithful to that. And watch and see what God does in response to your faithfulness. Come on, somebody. There's people in this room that know exactly what I'm talking about. They have been faithful to God, and God has been faithful to them. God says, test me. Prove me. Try me. So I want to encourage you. Maybe you don't tithe. Maybe you don't give in that way. Now, you are. Th this is a... Now, this group outgives its number. Always has. And I'm grateful for that today. I don't say this because 
I'm trying to increase giving. I say this because I know when we give, God gives back. So um, this is first fruits. We take the first of what we have, not the leftovers, and we say, God, we're giving this to you because we're trusting you. We're believing that as we give you the first of it, that you're going to put your blessing on the rest of it. Right? Jesus was crucified on Passover. He was buried on the, feast, on the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And guess what happened on the Feast of First Fruits? He rose from the dead. He became the first fruits of the resurrection. He was the first to be raised from the dead and given a glorified human body for eternity. Do you know that that, that song is true? The only scars in heaven are the scars that are on Jesus' hands, the scars that are in His side, the scars that are on the side of His head. Everybody else's glorified body, we don't believe from what we can see, is going to have scars. right? But Jesus still has scars, even though He's in a glorified human body for eternity. He became the first fruits of the resurrection. He led the way. One of those verses that talks about this, 1 Corinthians 15, 20. But as it is, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, Adam, the resurrection of the dead also comes through a man. For just as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all, somebody say all, will be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, afterward at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Are you with me? He's the first fruits of the resurrection. He's the first to come. And those that believe in Him, that belong to Him, we'll, we can look forward with anticipation of knowing that what happened to Him will happen to us, that we will get resurrected from the dead, that death no longer has any hold on us, that death no longer has the final say. Come on, somebody. Man, you don't have to be afraid of death. Death is not the final answer. It's not the final thing. Man, there is a life that overcomes death, that leaves it behind and goes on. Man, it's a life that's going to last for eternity. And the first fruits of that life, that overcoming life, that life that now can dwell in us, was Jesus rising from the dead on the day of first fruits, on the feast of first fruits. Through the feasts, we see God's plan unfolding. We see His promises being kept. We see that His great wisdom is worthy of our trust, friends. God used these appointed feast days to not just remind His people of His faithfulness, to not just show them what they had done in the past, but He is also using them to show us what He will do in the future. But there's more than one spring feast day. It's known to the Jews as the, there's one more, sorry, spring feast day. It's known to the Jews as the Feast of Weeks. Because it was seven complete weeks after Pentecost, plus a day, we know it as the day of Pentecost. Leviticus 23, 15 through 16. You are to count seven complete weeks starting from the day after the Sabbath, the day you brought the sheaf of the presentation offering. You are to count 50 days until the day after the seventh Sabbath and then present an offering of new grain to the Lord. So we already talked about one Sabbath, or sorry, one harvest festival. This is the early harvest of the grain, right? Everything's still green. This is the late harvest of the grain. This is now all of a sudden we can bring it in. We can start cooking stuff with it. We can start baking bread. All this work that we've put in now is paid off. 
where there was lack before, now there's plenty. You need food. Our neighbor needs food. Now we have money. We just got paid. The harvest came. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? This is a celebration of the grain harvest. Man, we just, want, we just got paid for the last three months. Everybody's happy. What do people do on payday generally? They go out to dinner. They buy themselves something. This is a celebration of the grain harvest. The pressure's off. The grains come in. Everybody has plenty. The grain that we've been waiting for is now ready. It's mature enough to harvest and be made into bread or other baked goods. Where there was lack, now there's plenty. It is a time to celebrate. How many of you, know, how many of you have been there before? Been through times where it was tight. And then you go through some times where all of a sudden there's some plenty. It takes the burden off, and you are so grateful to the Lord for all the things He's done. Now, according to Jewish tradition, this is not in the Bible. According to Jewish tradition, it was on the day of the Feast of Weeks, day of Pentecost, that God spoke to the Israelites from the top of Mount Sinai and gave them the law. Exodus 20. Right? Fire and clouds descend on the top of the mountain. There's loud noises. All of a sudden, God speaks to them from the top of the mountain. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? One of the most incredible scenes any place in the Bible. Read through that if you haven't for a while. Exodus 20. Um, Fire descends over the top of the mountain. God begins speaking to them, giving Moses and the people of Israel the law. Jewish tradition also teaches that because more than just Jews were there, there are some other nationalities that came from Egypt with the Jews, that God spoke to them in multiple languages. Again, Jewish tradition, right? Because there are different races among them. After God spoke to them, this is Bible, after God spoke to them from the fire and gave them his laws, about 3,000, somebody say 3,000, 3,000 people rebelled against God and died as a result. Now, Israel receiving the law from God is considered their birth as a nation. Birth of Israel as a nation. God gives them the law. The fire of God is present. Um, He speaks in multiple languages. Are you with me so far? So, the promise of the Feast of Weeks comes just as... Uh, just before Jesus ascends, Jesus is crucified. Uh, he returns after three days. He's with them for 40 days and then ascends to go back to the Father in heaven. So just before Jesus is ascending, he tells his small band of followers to wait in Jerusalem until they receive the Father's promise the power to be his witnesses. Anybody ever heard that before? Yeah. The promise came on the day of the Feast of Weeks, the day of Pentecost. That's when that promise was fulfilled. God came and spoke to people through tongues of fire from the Holy Spirit, and those who heard, each heard what? In their own languages, After God spoke to them, about 3,000 people, somebody say 3,000, 3,000 people repented and were saved, not judged. And this day is considered to be the date when what was born? Not the nation of Israel, but the church of Jesus Christ. 
Acts chapter 2, verses 1 and 4. When the day of Pentecost had arrived, they were all together in one place. Somebody say together. Come on, somebody. Suddenly a sound like that of a violent rushing wind came from heaven, and it filled the whole house where they were staying. They saw tongues like flames of fire that separated and rested on each one of them. Then they were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in different tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Christ, Jesus, was crucified on Passover. He was buried on the first day of unleavened bread. He was raised from the dead on the Feast of First Fruits, and the Holy Spirit was given at the Feast of Weeks. Do you see a pattern happening here, anybody? We see how God fulfilled these feasts in and through the life of Jesus. How He moved His plan forward strategically, patiently, and precisely. If we look at the Jewish calendar, we can see how God used all of these days that He taught them over and over and over and over again. For thousands of years, He taught them these lessons and then brought them to pass in front of them. We still have three feasts that don't have any clear fulfillment. These four feasts have been clearly fulfilled in and through the life of Christ and the church. But what about the three feasts that don't have any clear fulfillment? What should we expect from them? Should we also expect these to be fulfilled in the same way? Hi. The next feast is the Feast of Trumpets. I'm going to do these very quickly. The next feast is the Feast of Trumpets. This is Leviticus 23. I'm not going to read the verse. The Feast of Trumpets. These trumpet blasts were scheduled 10 days before the Day of the Atonement. Day of the Atonement, 10 days prior, is the Feast of Trumpets. You with me? It is a call to Israel to get ready. That quote from T.D. Jakes just rolling around me, get ready, get ready, get ready, get ready. I can't do it nearly as good as he can, but it's in my heart right now. Right? The trumpet were to call, was a call to Israel to get themselves ready. This was a time of deep repentance, of solemn sacrifice, of earnest preparation. This, this message of multiplication that I've given you for us to focus on for the year, it's, we know that we live in a broken world that's being saved by a broken Savior who wants us to have what? A broken heart. This is this deep repentance that God's talking about. This feast of trumpets is calling people to deep repentance, to have a broken heart for our sin, for our compromise, for us to have the same heart about our circumstances, about our actions, about our attitudes, about our habits, about our behaviors that God does. Yes, He loves us, but He hates our sin, friend. It's the reason He died on the cross. It's a call to Israel to get themselves ready. And we don't know for sure, but when you hear trumpet, many of you think of something in relationship to the Lord. We don't know for sure, but many believe that this points to either the rapture or the return of Christ. The Feast of Trumpets. 1 Thessalonians 4.16 For the Lord Himself will come down from heaven with a loud command and with the voice of an archangel and with the loud trumpet call of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. There's other verses, plenty of verses in 
uh, the book of Revelation, which we are starting not this Wednesday, but next Wednesday, uh, the same college that offers those courses we were looking at. They offer one in the book of Revelation. We're going to start that a week from this Wednesday. Um, there's plenty of places in the New Testament and even in the Old Testament that attributes uh, a trumpet call with the appearance of the great and terrible day of the Lord or the appearance of God on the earth. The Feast of Trumpets comes first. The next is the Day of Atonement. Now, this was the day once a year when the high priest would come into the Holy of Holies with incense and the blood of the sacrifice to offer atonement for himself and for the nation of Israel. Once a year, it would cover up their sin for one more year. The high priest would cleanse himself. He would wash himself. He'd take off all of his, all the other high priestly stuff. He'd just put a plain white clothes on and he'd walk in to the place where he could only go once a year. Incense in one hand, blood in the other hand. Sprinkle the blood on the, the mercy seat. Once a year. This is believed by some to be the return of Christ. While others see it fulfilled by the final judgment. But I think we can be pretty confident that God is going to fulfill some things on the days of these event, on the days of these feasts. I'm not going to stand here and tell you I know what they are. But it should convince us that God has a plan and He's moving it forward and we need to be ready. The last of the fall feasts that's yet to be fulfilled is the Feast of Tabernacles. Now this one's pretty easy. Pretty much universal agreement that this was the celebration of the final harvest. People would live in booths or sukkahs to remember God's protection and provision during their wandering in Israel. Now of course they're under judgment. They're wandering around the desert in Israel. They're already under judgment. But God continued to be faithful to them, continued to provide for them during that time. Now, this is commonly believed to be either the millennium, thousand years of peace before the actual final judgment, or this is heaven. This is after everything's been decided. I lean towards more millennium than heaven, but um, regardless. Paradise restored. This is how God wanted it. Revelations 21, 3 through 4. Then I heard a loud voice from the throne. Look, God's dwelling is with humanity and he will live with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and will be their God. He'll wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Grief, crying, and pain will be no more because the previous things have passed away. He will be their God and we will be his people. Together forever um, again. What God created in the garden, destroyed by sin, now has been restored on the back end forever. Feast of Tabernacle, a celebration of community and fellowship where we are with God and He is with us forever. Jeff, can you come help me? Before we leave, I just want to give us a moment just to think about. And I know it's a lot of information I just threw at you. It's very different than what we normally do. But I thought there was a lot of important messages in here. Through the feast, we see God's plan unfolding. We see His promises being kept. 
We see that His wisdom is worthy of our trust. We see Him strategically and precisely moving history towards these moments. We need to make sure, there's three things that I want to offer you this morning. No, one, we need to make sure we're ready. Not because we're good enough. Not because we did stuff just right. None of us, none of us can keep the law. I don't remember talking to a guy, I think, at courtside a couple weeks ago. If you're going to get to heaven by being good, how good do you have to be? Got to be perfect. One sin makes us what? A sinner. The penalty for sin is what? Death. Not just death in this body, but eternal separation from God. You don't want it. I don't want it. It just takes one sin to be a sinner. If you're going to get to heaven by being good, you've got to be perfect. There's nobody that is. There was one. He was the Passover lamb. <laughs> he died in our place to bring a new covenant so that we could be forgiven, so that we could be free, so that we could be whole, so we could know what it meant to be forgiven and free on the inside. Come on, man. There's nothing like it. I've, I've tried most of the stuff that's out there to try. I can tell you there's nothing like the, the joy of being forgiven. There's nothing like the presence of God. There's nothing. Man, if, you, if you're still thinking, you're still trying, you're still chasing, golly, friend, just be done. Just come and surrender. What, the stuff that we hold on to that we think is so worthwhile, we think, oh, this is treasure, this thing, I can't give this up, I can't give this away, i got to hold on to this, this is so precious to me. But we're holding on as trash, we got handfuls of, of refuse in our hands, right? And God's just saying, well, would you give me that? I have gold to give you, I have treasure to give you, I have life to give you, I have power to give you. We're like, no, I, I, I really need, this. I really want this. God help us to see. Even those of us who know Jesus, we have some of this stuff. Jesus, I just, want to, I, just, I just want to keep this stuff over here. You can have all that. Just, just could I keep this? Friends, uh, God help us. Right? Take the blinders off of our eyes. Help us to see there's nothing over here that is worth holding on to. God, just, I just, you have all that. I just want this. to make sure we're ready make sure you're ready we need to remember that we don't have to be anxious or worried or afraid because this world is crazy and it's easy sometimes I just got to quit scrolling through Twitter or I got to get off my Google News feed. It's just like, oh, my Lanta. You just get over, right? You do that for a couple of years, you're just overwhelmed. It's like, my goodness. Uh, we don't have to be anxious, worried, or afraid. We're standing with the King of Kings. We're standing with the Lord of Lords, right? Um, he is the king. He came the first time as the suffering servant. He came the first time as the lamb of God to die for the sins of the world. But the next time, friends, the next time he's coming as a conquering king. And it's all going to be over. He's going to make every wrong right. He's going to bring justice. For some, that means elevation. For others, that means condemnation. You want to be on the elevation side, not the condemnation side. You want to be on the reward side, not the judgment side. 
got to be ready. We also want to remember that God has a plan for the world. God has a plan for you and me. He's got a corporate plan that he is pushing us towards, that he is leading us towards, that he is driving at times us towards. He uses the broken. He uses the sinful. He uses um, Balaam. He uses Judas. He uses Peter. He uses the good, the bad. The, um, he uses all of them to get his will done, right? But then God has a personal will for you and me. And that we have to say yes to. There's enough like people that just, that God can move around the board to get his will done. If you say no, there's another one who'll say yes. You say no, 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 yes, all right? He just keeps pushing this thing forward to get his will done. But he can do it without us. He'll go around us. He'll just, okay, you don't want that? You, I'm not, I'm not going to make you. I'm not going to force you. We don't want to get left behind. God has a plan for the world, but he also has a plan for you and me. He knows how to get us where we need to be, and he's asking for our trust, our devotion, and our allegiance. He wants his story and our story to come together in the ways that only he can arrange. But we just have to be willing to let him move the pieces around. Sometimes that is uncomfortable. Sometimes we want him to move this way, and he completely doesn't do that. He does completely something else. We're like, God, are you even paying attention to what I'm talking to you about? God, do you even care about this thing? I've been praying and praying and praying and praying. Well, maybe you need to listen and listen and listen and listen. And maybe you just need to stand and stand and stand and stand. Maybe you need to ask and ask and ask and seek and seek and knock and knock. Maybe it's just not time yet. Maybe I'm not ready. Maybe you're not ready. Maybe the thing's not ready. But God's still wanting to do that, whatever that is. Just because it hasn't done yet doesn't mean he's not going to do it. Doesn't mean give up. So if you're comfortable with that, I know whatever you're comfortable with, I'm just going to encourage you to stand. Just join me. I just want us all to think about what we believe God wants us to do with the information we got this morning. How does God want me to respond to this? First of all, I encourage you to make sure you're ready. And that's really something between you and God. Something only you and Him know for sure. But if you're not ready, friend, you can be ready. <laughs> if you're not ready, you can be ready. I don't know if you're listening online. I don't know if you're here in this room, but I just want to encourage you today. If you're not ready, you can be ready. And it's not some hoop you need to jump through. There's not something you need to perform. There's not some leaf you need to turn. There's not some stuff that, man, I'm just, I'm going to get it right, and then God's going to love me. No, you can't, friend. You can't make yourself right. That's why Jesus had to die. That's why Jesus rose from the dead, so that his power that raised him from the dead can be made available to you to change us from the inside out. And all we have to do is receive it. All we have to do is say, Jesus, come. God, I'm going to put aside my thinking, my opinion, my will, and I'm asking you to come and live in and through me today. Change me from the inside out. I give you the right to change my priorities. 
I give you the right to change my thinking. I give you the right to change my heart and my life. I'm not going to fight you. I'm not going to push against you. I want to let you as much as I'm able. Come and change me. Come and live in me. I surrender to you. To your version of my life. I know your version's got to be better than my version. You're perfect. You know everything. You're completely powerful, altogether loving. And I'm frail and broken. I got issues and I'm deceived in places I don't even know. I'm weak in places I need to be strong, God. So much of the stuff that I've tried, it doesn't work, God. But I'm willing to surrender my idea of what it should look like to your idea of what it should look like. Teach me what that is and help me to follow it. That's all you do to get ready. You just invite him in. Maybe you're here today, you say, that's me. I just could just lift your hands to heaven. God, that's me. Maybe you're watching online now or you're watching later. Just lift your hands to heaven and say, Jesus, that's me. Come. I surrender to you. God, come and do it your way. <laughs> I'm tired of fighting. I'm tired of pushing. God, come and do it your way. Where I am weak, you are strong. You've got to be ready. Maybe you've been following Jesus for a while and your, your attitude's terrible. I'm sorry. Maybe you've been following Jesus sometime and the words that come out of your mouth are unworthy. You speak to the people you love in terrible ways. You need to be ready. I'm not saying you're going to miss out. You're not going to go to heaven because you got a bad attitude. I'm not saying that at all, but when we stand before him, we want to be ready. What do you have to do to get ready? Attitude, habit, words, thoughts, stuff you watch, stuff you think about, stuff you look at. What do you got to do to be ready? Surrender to him today, friend. Maybe you're here today and said, man, I'm just fighting with depression or discouragement. And just ask him today. We don't have to be discouraged or afraid. We're not trusting in the government. We're not trusting in our own ability. We're not trusting in any of the mountains. We're not trusting in the armies. We're trusting in the God of the armies. We're trusting in the God of the mountains. We're trusting in the God of the heavens. Those things are not our source. We don't, I, don't, I, I care about what it looks like, but it doesn't matter. God can still get us to wherever he's trying to get us. Now, might it be hard, uh, the journey be more difficult? Sure. But is His provision there to help us get there? Absolutely. And the more we recognize we need it, the more He gives. The more we surrender, the more He pours into us. We don't have to be afraid. We don't have to be anxious. We don't have to be worried. We don't have to be discouraged or depressed. We can say, God, I give it to you. I'm trusting you. I'm following you. I'm walking after you. Help me to have your mind. Help me renew my mind with your truth. Some of that stuff we have some of all of us, the way we're wired, right? Some of us are prone towards depression, discouragement. Some of us are prone towards uh, being anxious or being worried. We're, we're, we're wired that way. There's our chemicals, our brains are an uh, incredibly complicated machine. And sometimes and that's the, everybody's brain works a little different. Everybody's body chemistry is a little bit different. So for some of us, we really have to work at this. Others, they don't have any problem with being discouraged, depressed. Some of us they don't have any problem really being worried about stuff. But we all have our thing. And we all have our part in it. There's some stuff we can't do. There's some stuff we won't do. We have to be willing to do. 
I have to be willing to renew my mind. I have to be willing to stand and say, I'm not going to let my emotions rule me. I'm not going to let my emotions direct me. There's some stuff you can't talk yourself out of. I know. I have stuff like that. You can't talk yourself. It's unreasonable. I can't talk myself out of it. But I can still go across the bridge. Say, Jesus, I'm not, I'm not going to let this stop me. I'm not going to bow before any altar other than Jesus. Come on, somebody. I'm not going to bow before fear. I'm not going to bow before depression. I'm not going to bow before discouragement. I'm not going to bow before lust or perversion. I'm not going to bow before greed or jealousy. I'm going to bow before the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Because whatever altar you bow to, friends, it makes you in its image. Go ahead and write that one down somewhere. Whatever altar you bow to, it's going to make you into its image. If we bow down to fear, it's going to make us and shape us in its image. If we bow down to discouragement, depression, it's going to shape us and make us in its image. But if we bow down for the altar of the King of Kings, guess what? We're going to get shaped in His image. Make that declaration, man. I am, I'm, there's only one altar I'm bowing before, and it's the King of Kings. It's the Lord of Lords. It's the King of the universe, and He knows how to get me through. He knows how to get me across. My trust is in Him. Some trust in chariots, and some trust in horses. Some trust in their bank account. Some trust in their career. Some trust in their likes on Facebook. But I'm going to trust in the name of the Lord. We've got to get ready. We've got to make sure our mind's right. We've got to surrender to God's plan for our life. So, Father, I just thank you so much for the people listening to me today, those in front of me. I thank you so much for their patience. Lord, and I just pray that as we respond to you today, forgive us for any of the ways that we're not ready. Forgive us for the ways that we have made bow down to other altars. Lord, help us to only bow down before yours. And help us, God, to continue to say yes to your will, to your way. Father, we thank you for these things today. We ask them in your name, Jesus, for your glory and by your power. If that's your prayer this morning, somebody shout it, amen. God bless you guys. We're going to meet uh, together for prayer.